In any personal dictatorship or tyranny, one thing is certain. Someday, there will be a succession crisis. The dread day casts a long shadow before, influencing the period of dictatorial rule by anticipation, wrote Myron Rusk in 1962, one of America's greatest criminologists, a quote that Richard dug up on his recent paper about Xi's transition. Xi Jinping will not rule China forever. So what can we learn from past CCP leadership transitions, and what can we expect when she exits stage left? To discuss, we have on today Richard McGregor, an Aussie journalist with decades of experience in East Asia and the author of three absolutely mandatory China books, The Party, Asia's Reckoning, and the most recent little pamphlet, She the Backlash. Co-hosting today is Peter Vanderslice, a recent college grad who just wrote a fantastic thesis on CCP leadership transitions. But before we get into all of that, China Talk is hiring an editor. Responsibilities include editing the podcast, no prior audio experience required, transcribing shows, writing show notes and tweet storms, as well as translating articles and writing for the newsletter. The position will start at $25 an hour for 5 to 10 hours a week with the potential to increase in both hours and salary over time. Link to apply in the show notes. Native level English is required and strong Mandarin language skills are preferred. So Mao dies, then what happens? Yeah. So after that, you, know, you have Hua Guofeng as the designated successor, and then you have a, basically an attempted coup from the Gang of Four, which includes Jiang Qing as well as other members who were of the party who were very much, who gained a lot of power over the course of the Cultural Revolution. And Hua Guofeng's sort of first initiative is to basically get rid of these figures, and then he sort of got, goes through this lengthy process of rehabilitating previous leadership figures who were very important in the CCP who had been purged during the Cultural Revolution. The obviously probably most famous, which is Deng Xiaoping, who eventually <laughs> takes advantage of this and, and ultimately replaces Hua Guofeng altogether. Mao dies, certainly. There's, I think it, it, this sort of becomes the first, or if uh, at least one of the earlier iterations where you see over the course of Chinese leadership succession history where there's just massive destabilization as soon as there's any inkling of a power vacuum. In the instance of Jiang, Jiang Qing, the, the conflict that, that subsequently occurs between Hua Guofeng and Deng Xiaoping is certainly one that I wrote about, and I think is very much indicative of kind of what happens in future um, iterations of leadership succession going forward. So it was a real knife fight between uh, Hua and Deng, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Joe Trigian's research really talks a lot about how Deng was responsible for essentially leading what he, many of he doesn't necessarily use these words, but uh, a smear campaign against uh, Hua Guofeng. And the idea is that the quote that which was attributed to Hua Guofeng sort of this notion of this need to basically follow Mao unwaveringly, essentially, or this, this belief was very much manufactured. It turns out he was a great consensus leader. It turns out that Hua Guofeng was very much someone who was quite effective in, in not only basically creating a, a history of the CCP and creating a government after Mao, which is in and of itself is a major achievement. And Judge Ritchie says he's, he, his tenure was, in fact, a golden era of collective leadership in terms of running things, basically transitioning from this sort of <laughs> almost unilateral show run by Mao Zedong. And then kind of all of a sudden you have this relatively effective sort of collective leadership, which is actually very much like what the CCP was meant to be. If you look at the Constitution and a lot of the things that make up the party and the idea, though, which is interesting, and I love this term, is uh, this notion of that. Hua Guofeng, however, was, was not a member of what, of the party that, that the kind of group of people that Dung was a member of, which called the fell off the stage group is what they call it. And the, the fell off the stage group is this roster of people. The, what was the were, Chinese? I actually don't know. It's literally like a literal translation. So maybe like, like, like Xiatai or something like that. And in any case, the story goes that Dung and I believe Chen Yuan and certainly obviously Liu Shaoqi were all these very well-known leaders prior to the Cultural Revolution. A lot of them get taken out by the purge, and then the only people who are left over are these like duds who essentially are like yes men to, to Mao Zedong, so people like Hua Guofeng. And so once Deng Xiaoping gets rehabilitated by Hua Guofeng, Deng Xiaoping all of a sudden, all of a sudden starts to reach out to all these other allies known as the fell off the stage group. And then what you have is this sort of rapid succession of people essentially ganging up against Hua Guofeng, who actually quite honorably leaves office without really much fuss because he realizes like he doesn't want to put through China through another iteration of the Gang of Four uh, scandal, which itself was quite quite traumatic and, and very destabilizing at the time. But yeah, a lot of that is that understanding, at least that I gleaned, was in part thanks to Joe Trigian's piece, which I found super enlightening and really used a prolific amount of primary sources and, and whatnot. I think it's fascinating, Hua Guofeng, because he's had quite a revival in recent years. Many people in the initial stages used to talk about him, the three whatevers or what, that he was simply a, a cipher for Mao and anybody else who got into his ear. But if you look at 
the work that Peter is citing and then the work by Fred Tawis and people like that. Yeah. In, in fact, Hua Guofeng never got Time Man of the Year, but he was the one who did start a number of the most important economic reforms. It wasn't all done. I think it was Hua Guofeng who signed off on the first SEZs down in southern China and the like. And it's interesting to hear Peter describe him as presiding over a golden era of collective leadership, because that's people don't have a golden era and collective leadership usually in the same phrase. But that's a really uh, interesting way to put it. Yeah, that's, I'll be 100% honest. That's straight from, from Tridgian himself. But it's still valid. Let's come up to Jiang Zemin. So how did Dong not really leave power in the early 90s? He picked Jiang Zemin as his successor, handed off, I think, the leadership positions one after another pretty successfully. Chairman of the CMC, right? Party head, presidency, pretty quickly all were given to Jiang Zemin. And he was able, just by virtue of the fact that he was Deng Xiaoping, very much maintained moments of passive influence and probably the most remarkable element of that transition going on, and I believe this is right around to right after 1989, is his omnipresence through the southern tour. Initially, you've got Jiang Zemin leading the country, but is, at least in Deng's view, not implementing as many reforms as he should be. And so Deng's approach is basically, to, interestingly, despite the fact that this isn't a democratic country, but somehow puts public pressure on on Jiang Zemin himself by doing the Southern Tour, by basically going through these SEZs and trying, especially in areas like Shenzhen, and saying this is the future of China. Like We need to continue to open up in order to further engage in reform and opening up if we want to become emerge out of poverty, essentially. And that, at least to me, is like one of the more distinctive elements of that history, but I'm sure I'm, I may be omitting a few things. <laughs> yeah, I think the fascinating thing about Jiang Zemin, of course, is that he was appointed party secretary before June 4 actually smuggled up to Beijing from Shanghai. Many people seem to assume he came after June 4, but he was in fact in place before the crackdown. And obviously at that stage, if not a placehold leader, then a pretty weak leader. And as Peter said, in the aftermath of June 4, there was a massive fight over economic policy because a lot of people wanted to blame Deng's economic liberalisation for the political chaos. And Deng obviously tightened things politically but he wanted to press ahead with economic liberalisation. And in fact, Jiang Zemin was late to get on board with that. He was in the conservative faction until, as Peter says, the Southern Tour basically forced his hand. Now, Jiang, of course, over time became a really canny leader, consolidated power, and actually got right on board as far as one could with uh, market liberalisation. So he turned into a really interesting figure over time. So let's go from Zhang to Hu. That is actually one of the more interesting transitions of power because it's one which I think was very much under misunderstood by a lot of observers at the time. Initially, the consensus was that, or at least at the, at the time, people were her- heralding it as this model instance of transition, that somehow China had mastered this art of authoritarian succession. But the truth is that little did they know that actually the transition of power is very staggered, right? Rather than giving handing all three positions over at the time, again, CMC chairman, presidency, and party secretary, Xiang actually waited uh, multiple years. So I think he may have given the presidency or the party secretary over first. I forget which one. I believe it was the presidency. Waits a year, gives the party secretary role, and then waits two years to give him head of the CMC, which is being head of the Central Military Commission, being the most important role. If you remember, Deng Xiaoping's only role throughout his time as leader in China was head of the CMC. And so you have, really interestingly, is ultimately a very destabilizing process where Deng Xiaoping, or sorry, Jiang Zemin effectively cripples or cripples whose influence. And as he delays the process of handing over head of the CMC, he stacks all of the higher ranking kind of positions in the military with all of his allies, such that when who eventually takes over, he's surrounded by people who aren't on his team. <laughs> and so that very much is something which, you know, that very much, I think, affects how Hu is able to engage and implement his own policies and turns out to be, I think, very much, I think, debunks a lot of observers' kind of early impressions of that uh, succession. I think proves that even the most arguably stable iteration of leadership succession in China, that being the transition from, I'd say, Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, was itself fraught with a lot of different concerns, which 
I think, you know, is, is, is I think it basically shows, right, that this is a recurring theme, at least that's a point of the thesis, and something I'm sure will come up in a bit, that, you know, every single time you have a leadership succession in China, there's this contention between a, a new incoming leader and the incumbent one. And it's surprising that even between two relatively stable leaders like Jiang and who were picked well in advance, both of whom were picked well in advance by Deng Xiaoping, even in that instance, there was trouble with handing leadership positions over. And so you can only imagine what happens when you have someone like Xi Jinping getting his roles from Hu Jintao during a time of corruption or what happened before, as we just mentioned, with Deng Xiaoping in, in, in Jiang Zemin or, or Hua Guofeng and Deng Xiaoping. So let's can we tell the SARS story? Because I just thought that was hysterical. <laughs> yeah, so the SARS story is really interesting. I found. And basically what happened is that Jiang Zemin, by the way, like this is only one iteration, right, of this issue, but I think it's probably one of the more kind of intriguing or, or hysterical, if you want to call it that, is that so Jiang basically punishes the leadership figure who exposed who exposed the disease. So the doctor who originally exposed SARS, this guy, Jiang Yin, basically, who is this heroic doctor, he exposes the cover up of the SARS pandemic. And, and Jiang actually ensures that he's prisoned, imprisoned and subject to CCP study sessions, which in any other country in the world, you'd think he'd get the complete opposite treatment. And then at the same time, this guy, uh, well, Zhang actually, Kong, I mean, thinking uh, about how it, yeah, you sorry. know, how, how, how the Trump administration worked for the first few months. Of yeah, COVID. this is true. Sort of yeah, more yeah, understandable. Yeah, actually, so. I, I take some of that back. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, maybe. but it, it's <laughs> sort of like a, 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 a Li Wenliang Ana- analogous person, but yeah. actually much more senior than Lee, Lee Wenliang. Yeah, it's really wild, right, that, that I, I think regardless of what your political system is, that someone would be punished for basically disclosing the status of this deadly disease earlier than the government did. And at the same time, you have this guy, Zhang Meikang, who, uh, by the way, I could be completely botching these tones, but Zhang actually tried to rehabilitate Zhang Meikang, who was the health minister that who had removed from office for lying about the SARS pandemic. And so you have all these petty instances, right, of them duking it out. Another iteration of this that I talked about in the paper was who actually was forced to use Jiang's language when he talked about foreign policy. And so there was this term that who liked to use called China's about China's peaceful rise and who and Jiang was very much opposed to this and turns out at least this is all kind of hearsay, but at least in terms of what the literature says is that the Shanghai clique and, and sort of Jiang especially basically strong armed to and to stop using these terms to try to describe foreign policy. And so you just have so <laughs> many cases of who just being having to almost you know, run things by Jiang, or at least having direct conflict with Jiang in terms of what they wanted, both in terms of domestic policy, as we saw with SARS, but also in terms of foreign policy. Yeah. Just the human dynamic of being like the leader of a country and having to kowtow to an 87-year-old man, I just find yeah. <laughs> sort of very comedic. Anyways, uh, Richard, uh, what, what are your thoughts on their relationship? Well, there's a couple of things. I think it certainly was a staggered leader tra- leadership transition. I think it was party secretary, then president, then there was a long debate, delay before the CMC. So Jiang certainly hamstrung who, and I've spoken to Chinese officials about that, and they say looking back they didn't quite realize how much that Jiang had basically screwed who. That's definitely true. To add a, a, a gossipy note to the, the story about the SARS and the outing of the reality about the disease in 2003, I mean, I remember that very well. I was living in China at the time. And the doctor at the, who was, I think, at, the, at one of the military hospitals, who was so frustrated about the cover-up that he actually sent a fax revealing the true figures of the numbers of people infected by the virus. And he sent it to Time magazine, and the correspondent for Time magazine at the time in Beijing was Susan Jakes, who now runs China File. And so that really was how SARS was tipped into the open and eventually taken seriously and, of course, taken over at the time, the management of it, by Wang Qishan, who t- returned as Xi Jinping's anti-corruption enforcer. And actually, the peaceful rise uh, episode is really fascinating. I, I didn't know that Jiang had objected to this, but I do have a long section in my book on uh, China and Japan about how Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao, started to talk about China's peaceful rise. And basically, within a few months, quite senior scholars were quoting in the press saying, what are you talking about? China's not necessarily going to rise peacefully. You know, we're going to rise, but it may not be peacefully. And the phrase was the phrase was expunged from official speeches, and I think replaced by peaceful development. So that was a real slapdown for the leadership at the time, and it makes Wait, so, sense. So Richard, was it like that, was it like we're not going to let anyone hold us down? Is it like some like macho thing? Well, a little bit. It's like we're not going to limit our options. You know, you know be serious here, type thing. 
and some of the mm. hawks just said it out aloud, and and the phrase was quickly thrown into the dustbins of history. We should. Um, forever now refer to China Talk's peaceful rise. Please tell your yeah. friends about the podcast. Let's let's get a, let's get a nice peaceful rise of the um, uh, the download numbers. Uh, anyways, who to she? We've talked about this before on the podcast. It was messy. Maybe uh, a quick pressy and then lessons learned. Richard, what what in particular did did we learn about the way C- the CCP operates from from Xi's assumption of power? I think there are a number of things distinctive about Xi Jinping's choice to take over the party. The first is that he was basically the first leader in the modern times, or since the 1980s, who had not been chosen by Deng Xiaoping. In other words, he came up after he was chosen as successor after Deng died, and then proceeded five years later to take over the party secretaryship. Second thing is that. Xi Jinping, and this is ironic, of course, in, in light of what comes later, he was the first leader to really benefit from this attempt to have orderly and peaceful transitions of power, to benefit in full. In other words, he got the head of the party at the party congress. A few months later, he was made president, and he was also made head of the military as well. So he got all three top titles at once. And so in terms of orderly transfers of power, nobody has benefited from this more than Xi Jinping himself, which, of course, looks rather odd or ungrateful when a few years later he throws out the whole process. It's interesting because, as you're saying, Richard, there's sort of this direct transition. He luckily inherits all three leadership positions from Hu Jintao. Seamlessly, again, he is the first leader to be chosen. And it's really ironic because at the time, to my understanding, is that Hu Jintao advocated for Li Keqiang, while Jiang Zemin had originally thought that Bo Xilai would be a good candidate. And because they really couldn't agree on who to basically pick, they agreed on Xi as a sort of moderate compromise candidate who apparently won through basically a straw poll that was held among 400 different party officials at the Central Party School. And I think that really is quite striking if you think about how Xi ends up entering stage. He comes in right after this massive jarring scandal, Bo Xilai, which who allegedly was conniving to engage in some kind of coup, working with later we would find out, or at least according to propaganda, working with Zhou Yongkong. And I think here too, right, I think that on the one hand, it was very stable, as you were saying, Richard, insofar as you had all three leadership positions handed over to Xi, and he was able to amass power very quickly as a result of that. And I think that Xi Jinping was certainly taking advantage, right, of his status as a princeling, his father Xi Jinping certainly being a foundational member of the party, and so interestingly enough, I think, just despite, I think, what we said, which is that he did benefit from an orderly transition of power insofar as he got all three roles, what did, I think, challenge him and was, one, the kind of precedent of Bo Xilai, which came before and was very much shocking, both to the public outsiders, but also to what was going on inside the party, considering that a lot of stuff wasn't really ever disclosed. And then also the emergence of Zhou Yongkong. I mean, the decision, and, and it seemed like, at least from a, from like what they were saying in reports, a necessity, the need to get rid of someone who's a former member of the Politburo Standing Sorry, Committee so is back also up, back up, pretty Charles jarring. Peter, oh, yeah. Peter uh, who is Zhou Yongkong and how does he play into this story? So Zhou Yongkong is they loosely, he's very much involved. He's, he's an ally of Bo Xilai, allegedly also a member of the Shanghai clique, but most importantly, uh, was former uh, head of internal security. And so the idea was that both him and Bo Xilai had contacts both within the military, but also more importantly, within the People's Armed Police. And so at least sort of the conspiracy theory was that Bo Xilai wanted to become president and that Zhou Kong wanted to have a leading role in whatever that administration would be, and that both of them would use their respective contacts in the PLA, but especially in the People's Armed Police. The same People's Armed Police, by the way, who tried to chase down whoever the police chief was in Chongqing, I forget his name, who basically kicked off the whole Bo Xilai scandal to begin with. And so essentially, you had this out, this alliance between Zhou Yongkong and Bo Xilai, which we would only later come to realize was at least allegedly part of this broader attempt to take over China, or at least undermine Xi Jinping. And I forget where I was going. <laughs> Essentially, although it was Xi Jinping benefited from getting all three roles, he still was subject to a very unstable leadership transition. I think that's also exhibited by the fact that he had to cancel a meeting with Hillary Clinton because he was effectively, he had disappeared for two weeks at the beginning of his administration. People still don't really know why, what exactly happened, but he essentially, it's almost, I think, similar thing, thing happened to Kim Jong-un last year when like nobody had heard from him for two weeks and people were wondering if he was dead. Same thing happened with Xi Jinping and there was never really an explanation as to why that was the case. And so I think that 
she was very much formed and affected by whatever occurred between the Bojilai scandal and, and the eventual kind of purging of Joyong Kong. And that very much, I think, shaped his ultimate decision to, to abolish term limits and try to delay what he thought would inevitably be a, a destabilizing succession process. But would love to hear any responses or thoughts on those, that idea. Yeah, you're definitely right. Xi Jinping came to power in this incredible turmoil. He thought that people were trying to stop him getting the, the top job. There's lots of conspiracy theories about why he disappeared, I think, in September, October, before he took over. Some people had him down in Zhejiang, where he had been based before, consulting with his comrades about the way forward. And I certainly do think the threat from Bo Xilai and Zhu Yongkang goes some way to explain the alacrity with which he acted once he got to office. An absolute whirlwind of activity, most importantly, the anti-corruption campaign. And that, I think, feeds into his idea that the party was being hollowed out internally by factionalism, corruption, and he put the cleaners through the whole system. And in some way, he's still doing it. We've done the our series. I guess we skipped, like, Mao assuming power in Yan'an or what have you. But we've basically we've, we've run through a half hour of all of the China CCP transitions. Before we talk about the future one that'll happen at some point, Richard and Peter, I'm curious if... Of all of these transitions, is there one room you wish you could have been a fly on the wall for? Which moment are you most curious? One for entertainment value and one for like analytic uh, predictive power of if you understood this bit a little more, then maybe we could have a better sense of what would happen for Xi. I would go first and I'd nominate two. I would first like to be in Beijing in June 1989 or late May, in fact, when gets on a sort of blacked out train and is brought up to Beijing to take over as party secretary. That's a moment of incredible drama and instability. He didn't know whether he was going to last very long. So I think that's a real uh, moment in time. The second place I would have liked to have been is Peter talked about the sort of straw poll of 400 or so top people at the party school who basically chose Xi Jinping. The whole process of the laying on of the hands to choose Xi is such a mystery to me. We often hear it's party elders, it's uh, factional chiefs such as they exist in China, it's the big Beijing families who people say still run the country. I would like to be a fly on multiple walls in the process of consensus building and horse trading and deal making which finally means that she gets tapped to take over from Hu Jintao. That process for me is still really difficult to penetrate. So I think so for my analytical would be to witness one of the, well, I'm sure many arguments between Zhang Zemin and Hu Jintao and at Zhou Nanhai, be it over the SARS thing or virtually anything else, just to see what is it exactly, to what degree was who crippled by Jiang. And I think it is interesting because there is very much an argument going around. I recently read The China Nightmare. I'm in a seminar with the Hertog Foundation, which I actually do really suggest for any college students who are interested in, in doing that uh, and just studying China in general. Led by Dan Blumenthal from the American Enterprise Institute, he wrote this book called The China Nightmare. And in it, he, among with many other authors who've done the same thing, and pointed to the fact that actually a lot of the developments that uh, Xi Jinping is involved in right now are very much were started during the Hu era. And so there's a lot of ambiguity as to, to what degree did Hu have power and how did that evolve over the course of his leadership time as he finally got CMC chairman and got to nominate some of his own allies. And so I think that's something that I certainly would have loved to be a fly on the wall for one of the SARS arguments between the two. And then secondly, this is also, I think, a cross between analytical and entertainment, but I would have loved to be at the 7,000 Cadres conference when Liu Shaoqi was essentially speaking the truth about the failure of the Great Leap Forward. And I think that although, because he was originally supposed to succeed Mao well before Hua Guofang, him and Lin Biao were both supposed to get that role and both got purged. It depends on how much you believe about Lin Biao's plane spontaneously crashing. But at least as far as Liu Shaoqi goes, we, you know, we can know definitively that was a you know, product of the purge. And one of my favorite sources when I was doing my own research was actually reading the speech that, that Liu Shaoqi wrote, which allegedly I think was was partially cleared by Mao at the time before it even being being read. But it, it was allegedly at the time that he was reading that speech that Mao began to turn against him. And, and you started to see this turn of events, which led to the Cultural Revolution. Um, and so I think that's such a pivotal time in Chinese history and such a defining moment for all future leadership successions. Um, and so I would have loved to have been there for that speech at the 7000 Cadres Conference. 
Yeah, we didn't go through the, the all the transitions that didn't happen, but yeah, I guess could so. have, But the real the, ones we've clearly yeah, covered <laughs> over the course of the over the course of the Mal of the Mal years, and certainly yeah. there were times where things could have gone differently, and he didn't not him not ending up with a twenty seven year or yeah, I guess twenty seven year disastrous run. I think Dung's consolidation of power, just like watching this four foot ten man who just spent ten years of his life in confinement all of a sudden spread his wings and very quickly established control over what was an incredibly messy situation having to push basically push an entire entire established bureaucracy out of power based on force of will alone pretty much he really didn't when he started this he didn't have many titles to his name and he had this it was the off the stage club because everyone was off the stage (laughs) folks were (laughs) folks were hanging out in podunk provinces and literally locked in farms and to be able to do the bureaucratic maneuvering to not start a get in power and not start a civil war yes Hua Feng had to play ball but at the same time that was one of the most extraordinary and consequential developments of 20th century 20th century Chinese history with that let's come to your uh, recent paper Richard that you wrote with Jid Blanchett I was curious you mentioned there's going to be potentially a destabilizing succession crisis after she eventually has to step down and so I guess the thing is, after he, he steps down, how, how much more unstable do you think this could be, at, maybe at its worst, because I know you, you lay out four different possibilities, relative to previous leadership successions, and obviously went through all the examples of, of previously un, unstable leadership transitions, but how, how do you think, maybe at its worst, how this would you know defer, at least in terms of degree of instability that would occur if Xi Jinping were to, were to transition and kind of pass, pass on the reins? The key part of your question there, you said that Xi Jinping eventually has to step down. That tells you everything. If he had stuck with this sort of evolving incremental institutionalism that sort of has gripped elite politics, I'm not saying these rules are set in concrete, obviously they're not, but if he'd followed what had happened previously and if he'd followed the uh, handover that was accorded to him, he would be stepping down at the end of next year at the 20th Party Congress. Jude and I are obviously speculating to a degree. That's inevitable with Chinese politics. Somebody recently asked me when I was doing one of those interminable webinars that we all have to do these days, somebody asked me, well, what do you see when you open up the black box of Chinese politics? And I said, sadly, when I get it open, I look inside and it's still black. You know, so, (laughs) you know, I... I'm going on my sort of educated intuition here. But so the first thing is he's unlikely to step down next year. Does he even appoint successes or one or two successes? One of the key things with Xi Jinping, he's not going to choose anybody who's not loyal. One of the big issues with him, it's the same with many authoritarian leaders. It's dangerous to step down. She has so many enemies and he'd be worried that they'd be out, if not to get him, to get his family and his networks and his acolytes and the like. So you either stay in office for a long time, you might die in office, you might become incapacitated in office and therefore pain would, power would gradually dissipate away from you. And I think in the absence of a clear succession line and a credible succession line, you have the chance of infighting at the top. And I think that's the CCP nightmare of a split at the top. We saw it after Mao died in 1976. That's another great fly-on-the-wall moment when the central bodyguard unit arrests the Gang of Four in the dead of night at Zhongnanhai. We saw it before she came over, took over the almost the split at the top then. We saw it in 1989 when there was a very public divisions at the top. And that's a nightmare because if that is sustained, that ripples down through the entire system. Now, I do think that any analysis of China, I'm not a coming collapse of China guy, and I think that China, Putin died, he doesn't leave much, he leaves a a hollowed out system in his place in Russia. If China dies, they've got a functioning bureaucracy, proper businesses and the like. But that, if the politics falls apart at the top, that can be really destabilizing and poisonous for years as they all try to patch it up. Yeah. Usually 
I roll my eyes at political science papers, but I think when looking at autocratic transitions, this is the one where the discipline particularly shines. There were some fun stats that you cited in this paper, Richard. 41% of autocrats experience exile, imprisonment, or death within one year of leaving office, compared to 7% for Democratic leaders. Scary! Like, that would keep me up at night. It's pretty high, the 7% for Democratic leaders. That kind of surprised me. Exile, prison, <laughs> or death. I, I guess they must be taking South Korea into that count actually because that's what seemed to happen to every uh, South Korean president these days. So let's walk through let's walk through your four transitions. The first one I didn't even realize was a thing. Peaceful succession in 2022? Why would that happen? Yeah, I think we had to put that in because it's possible low percentage. We didn't do the whole 5%, 10% chance thing. You'd have to say it's about a 5% uh, possibility. Who would take over? That depends on the power balance at the time. In theory, Lee Ke-chung, I think, can still be appointed. He'll be 67 at the end of next year, and that means he's not at retirement age. I know she has muddied the retirement age thing at the top these days, but Lee Ke-chung could take over. If he were not to take over, then who else inside the Politburo Standing Committee would have the power to do that? And I guess the standing. You might think Wang Yang, but he's in theory from... You know, the old Hu Jintao Youth League faction, so maybe not him. Is it somebody from the Politburo? You really can't come straight from the Politburo to head the Politburo Standing Committee. So that's another reason to think why, in fact, he won't step down because there's no obvious candidate who could take over at the end of next year. I think one of the things that it seems like all the candidates that I've seen, both in, in your paper, Richard, as well as just in my own research, have been related to basically reduced to three. You have Ding Xiaoxiang, who I believe is, has a bit of almost an assistance role to Xi Jinping, like, like a, a chief of staff. You have Hu Chunghua, who, and who, like Chung, Chen Minar, Chen Minar and Hu Chunghua, I'll talk about together because they do have similar resumes. Chen was at prominent leadership positions, and then Hu Chunghua had a lot of roles in Guangdong, Mongolia, Tibet, and Hebei. Again, but not neither of them are members of the Politburo Standing Committee. And if you look back, right, like who, or sorry, Hu Jintao joined the Politburo Standing Committee at 49. She joined at 54. And so if you look at, <coughs> they had lots of time on the Politburo Standing Committee being groomed well before they were selected to be uh, successors. And as you were saying, Richard, insofar as very few, if not nobody on the Politburo Standing Committee is either of age or just seems like a reasonable candidate, that really implies that Xi Jinping is likely to stay past 2022. I was thinking maybe, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe Hu Chunhua or Chen Min or Ding Xiaoxiang gets promoted to, say, Politburo Standing Committee or, or even Premier if Li Keqiang decides to step down for some reason. And then that way they start to get groomed. And I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but as one of your other scenarios, maybe as a result, they come up in 2027 or 2032. And so essentially, they'll elongate the leadership transition process along that sort of extended timeline by promoting Hu Chunhua, Ding Xiaoxiang, or especially Chen Minar. So, so Richard, yesterday I did my first ever ranked choice ballot voting for New York mayor. Presumably, she does not have to do ranked choice when picking a successor. But who, who do you think are the leading candidates if you're, uh, if you're sitting in the premiership today? I just want to say, first of all, congratulations on doing ranked choice, as we do in all elections in Australia, where we call preferential voting. And we're very proud of our system, and we're glad to see it spreading to New York now. No, Look, I, I leading... got to say, I got to say, Richard, like I liked none of the candidates, and it was almost more painful to pick five of them I didn't like, as opposed to being like, okay, here's one, like. All right, I'll pick that person. It was it, it, It's novel, but it's also like, oh, man, you just got to internalize how terrible all these people are. But it's you, also you, difficult for, like, city comptroller or something where you just don't know the candidates. It's, like, quite difficult. I watched 30-minute I mean, interviews like, of all those candidates. If, if living in China taught me anything, it's that I should, you know, vote for city comptroller. <laughs> get educated for city comptroller. Anyway, look, on the individual candidates, all the people, I think it was Ding Xiaoxiang, Chen Minar, Chun Hua, mentioned by Peter, are all obvious candidates. I guess the question is, you can promote a couple of them, but are you going to promote a couple of them and make one your preference over the other? Now, in theory, you'll do that by the way they're ranked on the Politburo Standing Committee, but I have the sense with Xi Jinping that things might be a little bit more fluid than that. If he does stay on beyond, he, we've got the 2022, 2027, 2032, 
Xi Jinping has set a whole sort of midpoint KPIs for the China dream for 2035. As I like to point out, and I uh, did the maths myself for this, by 2035, Xi Jinping will be the same age as Joe Biden at the end of his first term. So it's quite possible he'll hang around to then. And it's quite possible that we talk about the potential candidates now, but they might be leapfrogged. We might overpass an entire generation, in which case, if Xi Jinping does not nominate a successor this time around, then the next leader of China is in a mass of officials because of the way retirement ages and the hierarchy works, is somebody somewhere between the age of 50 and 55, and we don't have a clue who it is. It's difficult to see what happens. I suspect the scenario that Peter sketched out that one or three of these uh, potential candidates will go into the standing committee this time. I'm not so sure that we'll have a clear lead on one of them taking over in 2027. She also could die tomorrow. You had a great line, Richard, where there was some Xinhua article talking about how he loves exhaustion. He's a former smoker. He's not the uh, most felt guy on the planet. What happens if he dies? And, you know, how does different ways of a state leader dying impact the way that succession could play out? Without being too ghoulish, you can die suddenly or you can die slowly. Yes, I think the line that somebody came up with Stalin was that he had the lack of grace not to die quickly, but to die in installments. And as we saw from the Death of Stalin movie, that sort of sends everybody to an absolute tiz and people turning on each other and alliances made and unmade and probably other people dying along the way. But look, you know, China has terrific doctors, as we know. You only have to see Jungs wheeled out onto the podium at various anniversaries at different times to see how good uh, they are at that level. But nobody's immortal. She was a smoker. He is overweight. He has got a very stressful job. All those attributes that Xinhua has noted on top of that. So what happens if he does become incapacitated or passed away? It's a real issue. And the system has, in theory, a formal process for choosing a new leader. I think it's uh, through the Central Committee, and you choose somebody from the Politburo Standing Committee. But as previous uh, transitions have told us or have not told us, there's no clarity on that process. There's no sort of actual vote of the Central Committee. They don't convene and people lobby beforehand and they actually put up their hands. The deals are done in the back room. So it's quite opaque, and I would say since Xi Jinping has been so powerful that if he does go or leave the scene, then there's going to be a massive power vacuum, and we have no idea how that can be filled or by whom it will be filled and whether it will be filled in any stable fashion. I might say the system has great incentives for compromise to get somebody in there without having infighting at the top, but but nothing is guaranteed. Peter, anything on this? Or follow-up questions? Yeah, I guess the question about Xi's unexpected death, I think, is quite concerning. I know that there have also been rumors about his poor health. And and you do wonder, right? I I mentioned this earlier, but again, I recall when people thought that that Kim Jong-un had passed away last year. I believe it was in the middle of April. Nobody had heard from him for over two weeks. And people were like, what's going to happen with North Korea? And luckily, I think as Richard was alluding to, like China has slightly better institutions than that. (laughs) But at the same time, one of the biggest concerns of Xi Jinping is that he's accumulated so much power. He's removed basically a lot of other powerful figures. And you can, I don't know if this is a reasonable, I think this is a reasonable comparison if you think about how this what Mao did, right? He got rid of Lin Biao, he got rid of Liu Shaoqi, he put Deng Xiaoping in jail or in, under house arrest. And there was this massive power vacuum. And the result of that was this sort of conflict like the Gang of Four that you saw. And Mao died in installments in his own way, right? For better or worse. And, and when he went, there was this massive power vacuum. And China basically had to have a reckoning when Hu like uh, when Hua Guofeng basically had to pick sides and, and decide to get rid of Jiang Qing and, and, and the rest of the Gang of Four. And so theoretically, if history repeats itself or at least rhymes, when we look back, you start to see that in fact, yes, like there is a possibility that let's say Xi Jinping dies of one one or, or multiple health conditions, that 
China really could enter chaos quite fast in, in a way that we really wouldn't be able to imagine and that the only proxy of which to maybe even predict would be by looking back to the days of right after when Mao Zedong passed away and you had the chaos of the Gang of Four. So I think it's a very reasonable consideration and, and, and deeply risky both to China domestically and to the international stage overall in terms of what the spillover effect of something like that could be. So Richard, what about a coup? Well, look, a coup is always possible. I don't want to over-dramatize it. Um, it's very difficult at the moment with Xi in power because he has the whole system tied up and tied down in multiple different ways. He's got his own person at the head of the Central Bodyguard Unity. I think he might have actually turned over that person once as well. So all the key institutions, include the military, including the military, seem to be loyal to Xi Jinping. But of course, if he is incapacitated, to go back to that scenario, if other rivals are circulating, circulating, if the unit and the PLA see somebody ascending who they don't like, then that's uh, entirely possible as well. But I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to overstate it in as much as to give it credence that I think it's just around the corner. But look, there's going to be surprises ahead in Chinese politics. We can't just expect Xi to sit in the throne and from between now and 2035. And so in that respect, it's very important to canvas all possible eventualities. If you think about if you think about basically the history of China and, and just at least the CCP, right? China is a little bit of an anomaly relative to other classically authoritarian countries, as would be studied by, you know, the political scientists and Milan Svolics of the world in that there haven't been any flagrant coups necessarily. There's obviously been massive controversies over power and whatnot, but a lot of that has remained internal to the party. And there, there's, it's pretty rare for someone to come completely out of left field with no backing whatsoever and essentially take over the leadership, right? Even someone like Deng Xiaoping had massive footing and a, a colossal presence well before he was purged. And so that's what enabled him to take over from Huaguafeng, for an example. For example. And this notion of a coup, in many ways, if, if there was a coup, if, if we really do think that Bo Xilai and and Zhou Yongkong constituted a coup. It sounds like Xi Jinping was pretty successful at repelling that and ensuring and putting in a lot of measures in place to ensure that wouldn't happen again, particularly if you think about all the new work committees that he created to get more control over the military and basically ensure that every single one of these institutions were within his region and not in reach of anybody else. And insofar as that's the case, I'd say that I would argue that a coup is probably one of the less, if not the least likely outcome in terms of scenarios that we see for leadership succession? I think very briefly, it's better to think about it may as a semi-coup. In other words, the PLA and the like swinging behind mm -hmm. a civilian candidate. We have not had a PLA okay. representative on the uh, standing committee, I think, since the 90s. And they're totally removed from the civilian, civilian leadership. So you would see them back somebody rather than take over themselves. Richard, reflecting back on the party the book you wrote, which came out in 2010, which was the first book I read about the CCP. How much has changed and how much has, has stayed the same over the Sierra? I lived in the States for a number of years. And one thing I learned about living in America is that modesty in any form is a capital crime. So I'm going to give myself a pat on the back for the party and say it basically holds up very well in describing in broad terms the sinews of the Chinese political system. But there's one area where it's clearly wrong or wrong now. When I was writing that, and I think this was a pretty wide, widely held view that China needed a form of collective leadership. The country was so big, complicated, complex, sprawling with so many sort of issues at, at home and abroad to deal with that the only way you could uh, manage that was by having some sort of group of people. In other words, strongman leadership was over. I don't think I said it as clearly as that, but I certainly intimated that. So that was clearly wrong because we've gone back to an era of strongman leadership under Xi Jinping. So that for me is the big change is that Xi has upended all those sort of assumptions that were starting to become embedded in uh, analysis of Chinese politics. And it may be simply because we had a very drab, weak first amongst equals in Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping is the backlash against that. And, and I also want to talk a little bit about Asia's, Asia's Reckoning, another one of my favorite books, which, for those who haven't read it but should, gives 40 years of uh, basically going from Gaga Kaifeng through, I guess, 2017 and looking at international 
politics, diplomacy, economics, cultural exchange between the U.S., Japan, and China. Can we talk about how you wrote that book? What was the sort of research process? How did it first? How did you first envision it, and how did it maybe change over the course of writing? Yes, thank you for reading that book. It didn't do nearly as well as the party, unfortunately. But if you go into any bookshop in the UK, you'll see a ton of books about England, Germany, and England and France, and you know, the centuries of the relationship. You go into the an American bookshop, and there's whole libraries about the US and the Middle East, and the US and China, and those bilateral relationships turned up and looked at every which way. But there's just about nothing in my view, certainly in sort of terms of readable and up-to-date books, there wasn't anything about Japan and uh, China, the world's two biggest economies, Asia's uh, second and third biggest economies, the world's Asia's superpowers, incredibly fraught, difficult, complicated relationship. And so I thought, I'm going to write a book about Japan and China. I'd lived in both countries, and it always really gripped me. And once I started doing that, I realized you could really only write about Japan and China if you wrote about Japan, China, and the U.S. In other words, you couldn't simply quarantine the Sino-Japanese relations, the U.S. role, particularly in the post-war period. I was so excited by the research, I sometimes think I put a little bit too much detail in there and I missed the big picture. Oh, no, it was great. It's every paragraph. It's, man, I wish someone would write a book about this paragraph. I'm glad Um, you said that because I was so thrilled doing the research and uncovering all these things that I thought were in retrospect that only I cared about. So that's, that's good to hear. But I think it's I a mean, great if topic, anyone, actually. If anyone, no, but seriously, though, if, if there's any student out there who's looking for a graduate thesis, just open Richard's book to literally any page, and you will find something which deserves which deserves 20 more pages. But so, anyway, and Japan-China, obviously, is still fascinating right now, and that's an interesting dynamic in the whole sort of the world dividing into uh, narrative. Sure. So before we talk about the present day, was you saying you can't write Japan, China without the U.S. throwing shade at the late, great Ezra Vogel, <laughs> who, who wrote it, whose final work was a 700-page Japan-China-facing history, taking you from 1300 to the present? I would never throw shade at Ezra Vogel, a lovely guy. He was really helpful to me. I, first, I remember when I was setting out to write my book, and somebody said, oh, Ezra's doing a book on that. And of course... And I told this to Ezra himself. I said my first reaction was not, oh, gosh, how wonderful. My first reaction as a journalist, a competitive journalist, was, oh, no. Why do I bother if he's, if he's doing the book as well? I reviewed Ezra's book. It's, it's great on a lot of stuff, but mine is concertina really into post-war. So they're complementary. You can read both. So, Richard, how do you see the themes of your book playing out over the past four years? It's very interesting because... The people underestimate Japan is America's biggest bilateral military ally, right? There are more U.S. troops in Japan than in any other single country. Without Japan, U.S. power in Asia basically is finished. So Japan is pivotal, really, to where things go with U.S. and China in the in coming decades. I think many people from the outside tend to see Japan, and for obvious reasons, particularly under Abe, as a steadfast U.S. ally and see the Japanese as quite hawkish. And I think that's true, but only up to a point. The Japan's China policy is one part American, but it's also one part German because there's still a very big engagement camp in Japan. There's still a very big business camp in Japan. The number two in the Japanese government, Mr. Nikkei, is one of the famous pipes, backroom connections to China. And I was talking to somebody who'd been to see him the other day, and and she said, oh, all he kept saying is we must keep stable relations with China. Now, the rest of the government doesn't seem the same. Japan has a kind of pro-Western streak and a kind of pan-Asian streak, and I think there's interesting sort of division there when it comes to China. They want America to stay, but they also do not want to upset their relationship with China. So Japan is really walking a, a, a tightrope on this issue. That's why Trump was such a damaging president, because he you know, want, insisted on humiliating allies at any turn. South Korea, I think, more so than Japan. 
and that's why Biden is interesting. Biden really didn't get on terribly well with Abe, but I think he's an old school politician and the Japanese respond to that. The odd thing about the Japanese, yes, they want good relations with Japan, but they also like the odd display of naked American power to keep China on the back foot. So it's, it's, it's not only about Japan managing the US and China, the US has to manage Japan as well, and that's a formidable challenge at the same time. So it's really fascinating, actually, to see how that's going to work out. It's also fascinating for me sitting here in Australia because we're in the middle of it as well. We've got a very close relationship with Japan. We've got a very close relationship with the US. We've got a very fractured relationship with China. So we are banking on the US-Japan sort of axis thriving and staying strong as well. Do you have a few book recommendations off the top of your head, Richard? It's only published in Australia. I hope it'll be published elsewhere. It's by Linda Javen, who's a China scholar, translator extraordinaire. And she's written this great book called The Shortest History of China from the very beginning up until the current day. So that's a a virtuosic take in about 300 pages of all Chinese history. I've just read The War on Uyghurs by Sean Roberts because I needed to read a book which gave me a context and an overview of the Uyghur issue, which I felt was really lacking, in my, on my part at least. And I'm going to give you one more book, which is t- totally irrelevant, but I went back and read one of the great American sort of thrillers or detective books, which I'm going to just recommend out of left field. It was one of my favourite books when I read it, and it's still fantastic and it's called The Last Good Kiss by James Crumley, published in 1978, probably before you two were born. That is tr- the truth. Um, yes. <laughs> I've read my – I started rereading Anna Karenina a month ago, and holy <laughs> shit, that book is just so good. And my 17-year-old self, when I read it the first time, did not appreciate it in the slightest, and that's been actually a real treat. Richard, I another sort of Xinjiang book – which I don't think anyone has read, but you really should. Ethnic from nation state, from, from empire to nation state by Sun Yan. It's 800 interviews, like 15 years going. It's basically doing a history of Xinjiang and Tibet from late Qing to 2016 and how Beijing governed and how sort of the people responded to it. And it's so much deeper than all the other ones I've read. And I'm really sad that no one reads it. Richard and Peter, thank you so much for being a part of Chinese. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate it. It's great to have finally been on uh, your show, George, which I often listen to as I drive and walk around the city. I don't know where I'm going But I sure know where I've been Hanging on the promises and songs of yesterday
So long. 
I'm so lost. 